Good morning. If you would, if you would turn to Psalm 91, as Lauren said, it's on 497 in the Pew Bibles. And uh, as you turn there, I would love to read for you a portion out of a book um, from a very obscure author, an obscure book that you've probably never heard of called Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it's sarcasm. I'm very sarcastic like Brian, so you're probably going to have to get used to it, unfortunately. Um, so this is from the today's English version of the book. Uh, to set the stage, Christian has just gone through the Valley of Humiliation, and he's fought Apollyon, if you know the story, and Apollyon is the devil. And he's fought him for a long period of time, and he is extremely tired and weak, and weighed down by his armor. And this is the quote I'd like to read for you. The path between the ditch and the quagmire was exceedingly narrow, and Christian had to be extremely cautious to stay on it. It was almost like walking a tightrope over the bottomless pit in the dark. To go on was very dangerous, but, as, but it was just as hazardous to attempt to turn and go back. He crept along, feeling his way, not knowing what minute he might come to the end of the path and plunge downward into death. In the middle of the valley, close by the path, was the mouth of hell, from which came flames and smoke rolling out toward the path. And there were hideous noises and doleful voices against which Christian's sword was ineffective. Yet he had another weapon that was always effective, effectual, fervent prayer. So he cried, O Lord, I beseech thee, deliver my soul. Then he had a little more faith. He went on quite a distance while flames occasionally leapt up toward him, and he continued to hear those dreadful noises. He heard sounds as of something rushing to and fro in front of him, making him feel as if he might be torn to pieces or crushed like a clod in the street. This continued to harass him for miles. Then he thought he heard a mob of fiends coming towards him. He stopped to decide what to do. He had half a notion to go back, yet he reasoned he might be halfway across the valley. Realizing that he had already passed many dangers and thinking that the risk behind might be greater than those before him, he resolved to go on. Still, fiends seemed to come nearer and nearer, but when they came almost to him, he cried with a loud voice, I will walk in the strength of the Lord God. Hearing these words, they drew back and came no further. And this goes on for a little while. And then a few pages later, Bunyan writes this. After he had traveled in this disconsolate state for some time, he thought he heard a voice up ahead of him saying, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Now he was glad because first he believed that someone who feared God was in this dismal valley as well as himself. Second, he believed God was with that person, whoever he was, or he could never have spoken such words. He said, as God is with him, then he is also with me, or I never would have heard these good words in such a place, though there I did not realize it. End of the quote. Of course, this is an allegorical story, and I hope as we go along, you'll see the connection that we have to this psalm in this story. 
I hope as I read this account that you could see the parallels not only in your own life, but in your walk as Christians. Psalm 91 is a wonderful, loving psalm that is a great comfort during difficult times. It's, it's a bit hard to exegete, though, because what can be said is hard to put into better words than what the psalmist puts them here. That is the beauty of many of the psalms in the Psalter. They express the inward and outward emotions that we feel as Christians living in God's kingdom from our human and earthly perspectives. Psalm 91 is certainly one to remember and pray over. Therefore, my goal is simply to go through the psalm and make some observations, then to make some practical applications at the end of our time this morning. Psalm 91 is an anonymous psalm. Some commentators ascribe it to Moses, since there's no break in your Bible from Psalm 90 to 91. There's no author given. But many don't believe that to be the case, because Psalm 90 seems to take a more somber tone, as Brian preached on last week, and the structure of the psalms are different. Many believe this psalm was written by a priest during a time of great national trouble. Perhaps Jerusalem is under siege or being attacked in some way. However, the Septuagint ascribes this psalm to David, either as its compiler or its writer. As you look over the psalm, you'll notice that it breaks down into three distinct sections by whom it is addressed to. Verses 1 and 2, the psalmist is speaking in the first person, speaking about himself. In verses 2 through 13, the psalmist uses second and third person pronouns mostly. And then in verses 14 through 16, the psalm has God addressing the reader directly. The thesis statement of this psalm is written in its first sentence. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. We know right away this psalm is going to be about abiding in the safety of God. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I will trust. What you'll notice is that within the first two verses, the psalmist gives us four separate names for God, each carrying separate attributes. Most High is a reference to God as supreme over everything. He is ultimate, and nothing is better. Almighty is reference to God's power, His omnipotence, particularly, specifically in regards to battle and war, as seen in this psalm. Lord, in all caps, uh, in your Bible, if you didn't know that, that is actually the Tetragrammaton, which is the Yahweh, is how we, in English, uh, it gets translated. God's name for, it is particularly God's name for himself. The name he gave himself, to, or he, the name he gave himself when he was speaking to Moses. 
the I am referencing his everlastingness. And the last is my God. It's who God is to us from our vantage point. This is our reference to him. He is our object of affection and should be our object of worship. These attributes are the basis for the psalmist to say, as he does in verse 2, that he is his fortress, he is his refuge, and in him he will trust. This should be the pattern of our own lives. We should routinely consider God's attributes, not only in good times, but also in bad. We serve the great God of the universe. Our God is the only God. He's powerful beyond measure. Our God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is our God and not some aloof deity that must be appeased with good works, but a loving, caring God that created us out of love. And for that, He is to be given all glory and the only object of our worship. What better being than to have favor with and to have direct our lives? This is why Martin Luther, in his most famous hymn, which we just sang, can say in the opening verse, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. It's because of who God is that the psalmist can affirm his trust in God. He can affirm the same in you. If you look at verses 3 through 8. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked." Here we see the psalmist switch pronouns from two, or two words, you and your, particularly. In these verses, we see this interplay of different pictures. One of being in a siege or a battle, and the other of birds. Kind of two odd connections there. Pestilence, in verse 3, was a common illness associated with being under siege due to water supplies being tainted. In verses 3 and 4, we see both the strength of the Lord and also His kindness and loving care. We see the loving care taken for us in His description of finding refuge under His wings. Much like a newborn chick, we need God's sovereign help. Recently, uh, Gracie, my daughter, was throwing her Jaffe stuffed animal into the tree. And if you've met my daughter, Gracie, you know who Jaffe is. He's very famous. Um, Unfortunately, Jaffe hit a bird's nest and a baby chick fell out. Uh, The mother flew down immediately and stood just a few feet away squawking what I could only imagine was her encouragement of the bird, of her presence, or a warning for those around her. I gathered up the chick and put him back in his nest 
although not fearing I was going to be the bad end of either raining feces or a scene from Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. Or consider at times when forest fires go through and leave destruction in their wake, sometimes firefighters will find hawks or other large birds uh, burned alive with baby chicks under their wings, some of them still alive. That is the picture that the psalmist is painting here. God's graceful covering of us either either physically or spiritually. That doesn't mean we'll never see sickness, hardship, or trouble, but it does mean that He lovingly cares for us in times of great trouble or need for our ultimate good. At the end of verse 4, we see that God's faithfulness is our shield and a buckler. Typically in war, a large shield was used to fend arrows. If you've ever seen uh, a movie uh, from that era, such as Gladiator or something to that nature, you see they lock shields a lot of time, and they push and they use them um, to guard against uh, arrows and other things. But usually they have a smaller shield in hand-to-hand combat, if you've ever seen that. And what that's typically called is a buckler. And God's faithfulness protects us much in the same way. The larger is making reference to the fact that we have these distant troubles. And then also the buckler... He is protecting us from the real present dangers of hand-to-hand combat. Or to put it another way, from the distant danger and from those directly in front of us. So verses 5 through 6 are an interplay between day and night. Ultimately, what the psalmist is trying to convey here is that God's covering is not a 9-to-5 job for him. It's all day and it's all night, in the darkness and in the light. That was a very horrible attempt at rhythm. Verse 7 through 8 are simply the psalmist showing God's fighting for you while also providing protection. We, however, will remain, as the psalmist reiterates with the phrase, you will only look with your eyes, also showing our lack of involvement with this safety showing God's sovereignty. If you think these promises are lofty, look at verses 9 through 13. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways, On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, and the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. As I was studying these verses, I felt like this section had the broadest interpretation. Some had an overly literal sense of these promises in 91. That, that if prayed would heal you or bring divine favor in some 
magical instance. One went as far as to say that you needed to recite Psalm 91 91 times. That is a good thing we're not doing Psalm 119. <laughs> Some of these preachers went as far as to say it would protect us even from coronavirus. On the other side of the coin, though, was a very biblicist literal in which these promises were only for that group of people and at that specific time and not for us today. I think both of these approaches are wrong. First, we must understand that psalms are poetry. They're filled with figurative and hyperbolic language. God doesn't literally have wings. He isn't literally a fortress with bricks and mortar. Second, we want to be careful when we say that none of the Old Testament promises do not apply to us. And I, I kind of want to parse that out. So let's look at verses 11 through 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Those found familiar, they should, because Matt preached these words spoken by the devil to Jesus while he was fasting in the wilderness in Matthew 4. The devil quotes these passages to Jesus in an attempt to trick him. So the devil is ascribing these verses to Christ Jesus, or to Christ. Jesus doesn't correct him by saying that he isn't the focus of these verses, but that he shouldn't test the Lord, and then goes on to quote Deuteronomy 6. As a side note, here lies the danger of ripping passages out of context and taking them overly literal in their interpretation of them. The devil quotes these verses after Jesus has just said, you shall live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And it's almost as if the devil is saying, okay, if you... If you take these so literally, Lord, shouldn't you be protected? Jesus' return remark shows that we can't just take isolated passages, but must look at the whole of Scripture. And that's kind of what Brian spoke about this morning with biblical theology. One of the things that biblical theology helps guard against we need to look at the implicit and not just the explicit. So do these passages allude to Christ? I think they do. We see the devil, though wrongly applied, ascribes these passages to Christ. Also, we see allusions to Genesis 3.15 in verse 13, where he says, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. The original hearers of these verses would immediately go back to Genesis 3.15 and see that imagery of trampling on the adder or the serpent. And that's kind of the image that we get here. But do these passages ascribe to us? I think they can pertain to us in two ways. First, Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, as Brian was pointing out this morning. 
These promises are accomplished and fulfilled in Him. Though they might have been fulfilled partially by others, Christ further fulfills these words. We join ourselves to Christ in faith. Consider 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. It doesn't mean that true Christians will never see hardship, but it does mean that God is sovereign over those circumstances. And we can abide peacefully in Christ. Embrace. We, in a sense, join ourselves to the already winning team when we join ourselves to Christ through faith. The second way I think this alludes to us is in the spiritual realm. We see that angels are mentioned in these verses. So there's at least, on the psalmist's mind, a hint of the spiritual realm. God does battle for us in that realm, providing protection and a fortress that we cannot see, and many times we don't understand. Jesus himself was ministered to, excuse me, Jesus was ministered to in the desert by angels in Matthew 4.11, which provided strength and encouragement. Jesus was also ministered to and strengthened by angels as, prepared, as he was prepared for the cross in Luke 22.23. So it can be said with confidence that we serve the one that trampled the servant, the devil, and overcame his greatest weapon of death. We can, as Christian did in our story earlier, to continue on in the darkness with confidence, knowing that Jesus is with us. But our promises don't end there. Move down to the last three verses. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in time of trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. In the last three verses, we see God speaking to us directly from the psalm. It is here that we begin to see how to practically apply this psalm to our lives. We can see God's promised response due to three actions by us. The first one is we must love. We love because He first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. Our affections must be deep and strong for the Lord. The word here translated love is not the usual one. It means to cling to, to cleave, to be passionate. Our modern use of the word love has sort of been hijacked uh, in that we don't have multiple uh, words for love. Listen, I, I love the Minnesota Twins, and I love Husker football, much to some chagrin of probably a lot of people in here, and fishing. But I would never use the same word to describe my love for my wife or my kids. Unfortunately, that's our English language. 
Our love has to be beyond our typical usage of the word for our affections towards God. What God is referring to here is held fast or set, as in the New King James Version, implying immovable, never wavering, that it relies on the object of love for its support, God in this case. As for me, or ask me if I love the twins as much as I, after they lost to Matt's Yankees recently in a recent three-game series, and though I still love them, that love certainly wavered. For example, or for another example, Gracie has a tendency uh, when we're... uh, slightly angry with her, I guess you could say, is asking us if we love her when we're mad at her. Maybe your kids have asked you something similar. And my response is always that there is nothing you can do that will ever make me love you less. That is the love that God has towards us, alluded to, and 1 John 4.19. That is the love we must have for Him. A true abiding love. It just gets stronger and stronger. How does it grow in such a way? That is where our next point comes in. The second action, if you're looking at your Bibles, is to know His name. Knowing God's name is knowing His attributes. God's name is the sum total of who he is. It's the name we should bring glory to, and it's the name above all other names. How then do we better understand who God is and how to bring glory to his name? By reading and studying his word. It is in his word that we learn who God is, who we are, and the hope we have for him for the future. By studying his word that we see the culmination of his word incarnate, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ prayed as such in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Implying both knowledge and love for God in this passage. So you can see how knowing God and who he is results in our love for him. Have you ever loved something deeply that you didn't truly know? I would hope you would say no. That's what amazes me about my wife. She truly knows me, all my little imperfections and shortcomings, which she reminds me of every day, and yet she still loves me. This causes me to love her more. God knows our imperfections and our shortcomings better than any being. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So if God knows all this about you and loves you enough to give His Son for you, shouldn't that drive us to want to know Him more? I hope you will say yes. But studying His Word isn't the only way to better know Him. We must also converse and commune with Him And that is our next point. The third action by us is prayer. 
we see this when the passage says, He calls to me, and I will answer him. This relates to our story, doesn't it? Christian's one effective weapon against his fears was fervent prayer. And it's the only thing that increased his faith. Prayer is our, is our Christian faith. is not some ritualistic uttering meant to appease or excite some faraway deity. No, our prayers are communing with our Father as Jesus instructs us in the Lord's Prayer. We see that God answers us in our prayers. Was Christian prayer answered in the above story? I would say that it was. He increased in faith, and eventually he heard words spoken by another individual, God's words, and they gave him strength to continue and know that God was in that place. Sometimes our prayers are not answered in the manner in which we would answer them or in the time frame that we would like. However, the prayers are answered by him and his timing is perfect. In this verse, we see a tremendous promise that Christian realized after the fact that God is with us in trouble. Not only does he bring us through that trouble, but honors us through it. As Spurgeon said, about this passage, God first gives us conquering grace, then rewards us for it. This isn't saying that we always avoid trouble, as I've stated before, and that trouble will suddenly end when we pray. But it does mean that He will be with us through it, and that through it, He will help us persevere. He will ultimately honor us through these troubles and difficulties. Think back to it any number of your most difficult times. Can you now see God's hand in them? Can you see how He has or will honor you for your perseverance and strength through it? Let that be the building up of your faith. We have one last promise that is given to us by the Lord. That of a long life and the showing of of salvation in the last verse. The Jewish concept of a long life was tied hand in hand with a fulfilled life. God gives us a long, fulfilled life when we put our faith and trust in Him. Sometimes that means a life is shorter than we might like. I know when my dad passed away, it was difficult for me to come to grips with this concept. I fought over it all the time because I wasn't done with him yet. However, I know that my dad fulfilled the years and mission that God had for him. Sometimes it isn't the length of the years that determine the quality of life, but that of a life that is meaningful towards God. But you might be saying, a long life in this... But you might be saying... He says a long life in this psalm, not a fulfilled one. That's why I think there's more at play here. I think God is telling us that spiritually we will continue on. That is, why I th or, that is what is meant when he says, I will show you my salvation. 
What a glorious hope we have in Jesus Christ. That our eternal life, or that of an eternal life, with our Savior. Let's look at these promises affirmed in Jesus Christ in John 15, 7 through 11. And I will read that for you. And this is Jesus speaking. If you will abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Abide, my friends, in the safety and love and joy of the Lord. So, we've looked at the whole psalm, and I hope you've pulled something out of it. At the very least, I hope you better have a better appreciation for Psalm 91 and its promises. We looked over the psalm and see how it addressed to us, or how it's addressed to us, and we've seen how we should respond in love and knowing God and in prayer. Except you might be saying, these promises are all well and good, but I don't know if I agree with them. I have a difficult time seeing them now or when I'm going through the loss of a loved one, a difficult transition at work, cancer, or a whole host of other difficulties that life throws at me. I want to leave you with an illustration that Spurgeon used from time to time to really drive home this point and this idea. I think it, I think it does well to show what this means for us. Particularly this thought of abiding in Christ and how that looks. So two men are rowing down a river and through rapids when suddenly their boat begins to break apart. One man sees a rope floating on the top of a water, on the water that is tied to a nearby tree. He reaches out to grab it, but the current is too fast to pull himself to safety. He is continually battered and beaten by the waves. The other man decides... He doesn't like how the man looks, and so he grabs a nearby log floating on the water. He grabs it and rides above the waves in security, but travels down the river, ultimately to his demise. The man who grabbed the rope was eventually pulled to safety after an exhausting struggle. See, the picture is that both men had to reach for safety from the outside source. But it was the man who grabbed the rope that was anchored to the shore that was safest in the end. Sometimes it's what we are anchored to that determines our safety. 
anchor yourselves to the safety of Jesus Christ, and you will witness his salvation. There is safety in the Lord, and may we rest in it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I thank you for your never-ending faithfulness. Even when we waver in our grip on you, when we are battered and beaten by the waves of life against the rocks, we are anchored in you. Lord, I pray that Psalm 91 would be an encouragement to those here, that they'd be able to read it and pray over it, knowing that these truths are ours as well in Christ. Lord, with you, there is safety and protection. Help us to rest in it this day, moving forward. If you would continue in prayer, considering these words of the Lord.